Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. It really is a grey old day here, the rain pouring relentlessly down, and what I wouldn't give for a little bit of the Aegean sunshine. Well, as it happens, Tom Holland always brings a little bit of grease with him, don't you, Tom? Thank you so much, Dominic. That's a charming thing to say. Uh, and in fact, you have very kindly already allowed me to do one episode on uh, ancient Greece. We covered the Trojan War. Um, and because I'm a glutton for good things, I, I would like to uh, return to that. Um, and today we are going to look perhaps more broadly, not just at the Trojan War, but at the whole field of Greek mythology. But it's going to be a different kind of podcast because um, for the first time we have a guest. Um, and I think that, you know, when we have our first guest on this podcast, it's got to be a special guest. Definitely. Well, Dominic, for our first guest, I've chosen a polymath, a comedian, an actor, a novelist, an all-round Renaissance man. And it's the definition of a Renaissance man, I think, that he should love ancient Greece and perhaps specifically its mythology. So the Renaissance man that I have invited on is Mr. Stephen Fry, who is joining us from California, has a new book out on the Trojan War. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. And as a Renaissance man, in your honour, I'm even wearing tights. <laughs> Which we can't see on the scene, yeah, no. but I'm sure it's John's absolutely gorgeous <laughs> under <Yeah>. the desk. <laughs> so, Stephen, we, we've already had one episode on the Trojan War, mm. so it, it, it is a treat to get back to it. Um, and you, you've got... Um, new book about it. And it's the third in sequence of, of books that you've written about Greek myths. How much were you looking forward to getting to the Trojan War? Enormously. I mean, both as uh, in, in a positive way and also the slight sense of dread, because I knew that at least the Trojan War and its aftermath or after myth, ho-ho, uh, would lead to an end of the story of Greek myth. It, it, one can overdo how shaped Greek myth is and how how much of a literary performance rather than a folk performance it it might be but more than most mythic cycles it seems to begin at the beginning with the birth of the gods and uh, and end with the coming home of characters like Odysseus the the nostos as the Greeks call it that wonderful sense of home which can so easily symbolically seem like mankind coming home to itself and no longer needing gods to explain the oddities of the world or to interfere and intervene in the way the gods used to do and used to do in, in almost all cultures. And, you know, British folk had fairies and little people who used to dwell amongst us, supposedly. And, and almost all myths have, have this idea that there was a time when gods and men trod the earth together. And uh, the fact that it had to come to an end somehow, that the Trojan War... Um, and particularly the coming home, even the tragic coming home of Agamemnon and, um, and, uh, and the slightly less happy coming home of uh, Helen and Menelaus and the apparently happy coming home of, of Odysseus to the hearth, to, to their own families, to their own problems and squabbles, rather than just continuing to be puppets of the gods, is a wonderful sense of closure anyway. But the Trojan War is the final explosion of 
gods and and humanity uh, broiling together under the sun in the dust. And um, that's something I've, I've really looked forward to. I tell you the thing I didn't look forward to, because I don't think of myself as that sort of person, was the butch mano a mano fighting that uh, formed so much of the Iliad. And I thought I would get rather... But, do you know, reading it again, it is extraordinary how beautiful, poetic, strong and 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 perfect, really, Homer's writing about these fights is. You would think they become repetitive and boring, even in the violence of, you know, blood and brains shooting out of the sockets of a helmet and, you know, some of the really quite cinematic and horrific images. You, you would think you'd tire of them, but actually there's something quite genuinely noble and remarkable about the fighting, which I never thought I would find because... I think of myself as a typical child of my age for whom militarism and the warrior code is for um, saps and is for Spartans and we're all Athenians, you know, that, that sort of sense that it's a bit, uh, a bit over... It's part of what we now call toxic masculinity. This, and, and yet characters like Ajax and Hector and Achilles and Diomedes, you know, the, the real warriors in the story as opposed to the you know, sharp operators like Odysseus and Nestor and so on, they, they, there is a quality to them that, that continues to speak to you across the thousands of years um, that, that is just remarkable. And I was very pleased that my publishers, when they read the manuscript, they, they found that, that the actual fighting in the sand in front of the walls of Troy was, uh, for them, a really important part of it. If I can... Um... I know Tom wants to ask you lots of questions about myth in general, but one thing that interests me, so your first book in this cycle was about the gods and then you sort of did heroes. And this one you've moved a tiny bit more towards history because the Trojan War is yeah. an event that people argue about. So was that, mm. did you write about it in exactly, were you conscious of adopting the same voice as it were that you had with the earlier books? It, it's a really good point that, Dominic. And uh, yes, it's part of what I was saying about coming to the end of the, the, the mythic nature of this whole story as it becomes to, to leak into historicity of some kind. I think it's fair to say that for most of the modern age, what we call the modern age, we didn't think of the Trojan War as having any historical basis, and it wasn't really until Schliemann and the late 19th century and his excavations that this idea that it could really have happened, that there could have been a war in a historical place like that, became clearer and clearer. Though, of course, that's a whole other story. Schliemann was a showman and a fraud <laughs> and all kinds of things. And uh, as uh, as some archaeologists made, made the point that... Uh, with his dynamite and his readjusting of the sites, he he finally destroyed Troy in a way that the <laughs> yeah. Greek armies never could. <laughs> but uh, yes, it is interesting, and I I had an image for it, which is rather cute, I suppose, and therefore not necessarily to be trusted. But it it works as an analogy to some extent. That when you begin at the very beginning of the myths, you you have these almost archetypal figures, uh, these primordial deities who are what they represent. So Uranus, whom we amusingly call Uranus, of course, is the sky. And to this day, the Greek word for sky is Uranus. So in that sense, you're talking about personifications of 
abstract or uh, meteorological ideas and elements in the world and the cosmos that humans apprehend, and they give them a name and an agency, and that's a very basic god. And, and I remember thinking this is a bit like the early days of computer gaming, when in the first generation of 4-bit computing, it was very blocky, and there was no resolution, there were no curves the colors were very basic, just the primary colors of light, you know, red, green, blue, and, and, and yellow. And, and, uh, and then 8-bit and 16-bit, you started to get anti-aliasing, as they call it in the uh, graphics world. And you got these polygons with more shapes and more resolution because there was more power and more computing. So by the time you got to the turn of the century, each new generation of computer graphics was becoming more resolved, richer, more complex, more real. Mm. And it's the same with the personalities of Greek myth. It starts with these, uh, the sky, uh, the earth, darkness, you know, light. These are the gods, ether, you know, and so on. And then the race of titans uh, is born from that and they have a little more personality you can see chronos and the others and, and rhea they, they've got they've definitely got personality they're eight bit or 16 bit even and but then their children zeus and hera and uh, poseidon and, and demeter and so on they they really have character and personality and richness and and then the next generations uh uh including, of course, humankind that are made by Prometheus. And, uh, and so you start to get this, as I say, a bit like computer gaming. You start to get a, a, a landscape of entities, of divine beings that have real ambiguity and complexity and contradiction. They are, as Ian Forster would say, rounded characters rather than flat characters. Yeah. They have resolution. You know, they're 4K HDR, you know, and, and, and they've got all the... All, and and that, that becomes even truer uh, as you move into the, into the Trojan arena where you can see it is all about the flaws in humanity and in the gods that, that drive the story um, rather than just plain clunky lust or ambition but, but conflicting... Uh, 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 motives that that give rise to questions that people still ask today. Um, so, I'm, of course, I'm talking as if assuming that everybody knows the story of the Trojan War, but perhaps people will know enough at least to know that the the proschema, as uh, historians like to say, the the casus belli, the the cause of the whole thing, the bone of contention, or the apple of discord. In fact, um, it, it is all about Helen of Sparta, who is. Abducted, and there I've used the word, and taken to to Troy, and becomes Helen of Troy, and of course, is it's she is as I say the bone of contention. But the question you're bound to ask when reading Homer, who back references obviously to that story of, of Paris coming to Sparta to to take her, and we still don't know. Reading the whole of the Iliad and reading the sources after the. Smenaeus, Quintus Smenaeus and others, you still don't know, does Helen come willingly? Mm. Is she hypnotised by Aphrodite, the dullest answer perhaps? Um, and, or is it as you sense that she was glamorised yeah. by this very handsome Trojan prince, but that slowly his vanity, his surface 
you know, qualities, his, his lack of br- bravery or self-knowledge or, uh, or honour, uh, caused the love to die. Um, and that is much more interesting. And it's sketched in so lightly by Homer that you can't quite believe you've read that much into it. But that's part of Homer's genius, I think. Yeah, well, I was going to say, on the topic of Helen, I mean, part of the fascination of all the, the figures of Greek myth is that when you write about them, say, in, in, in a book like yours, they are unitary characters and they are the mm. compound of all the mystery and all the many different things that have been written about them by different people. So Helen, of course, you know, it's not, she's not just um, the subject of Homer. She, many different writers wrote about her and many different writers attributed different <laughs> motives to her. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder when you are writing about the gods or the heroes or, or Helen, um, you were having to draw on multiple sources. H- how easy did you find it to blend those sources so that you had kind of a sense of unitary characters when you were writing about them? That's a really good question. And, and of course, uh, y- y- it's impossible not somehow to take sides, if that's the right phrase. Um, most people of my generation and background who, you know, studied classics a bit at school, uh, you know, up to A-level at least, and and, certainly not academically qualified to pronounce too much on it. But most of us tend naturally to side with the Greeks in the the Trojan War, the Achaeans, whatever you want to call the side that's come to collect Helen, just because that's the civilization that we regard as the one that's primary. But whenever you get involved with the story, you can't help feeling extreme admiration and respect for Priam and his family, with the exception of Paris and Diphobus, perhaps. But generally speaking, Hector and Andromache are so lovable and splendid, and Odysseus is genuinely so twisted (laughs) and cruel, (laughs) and Agamemnon is so pompous and absurd and lacks self-knowledge to such a great degree. And you start to get furious with the Greeks, and you realise that... Nonetheless, you are telling the story from their point of view. And I think the way I got inside the characters and tried to have my own, well, tried to let them speak for themselves, but under my own guidance, obviously, was by mostly having Odysseus as the point of consciousness. For me, even if I don't tell the story entirely from his point of view, it is usually Odysseus watching Agamemnon or uh, seeing uh, something dishonourable happen and being a little bit cynical about it. And, you know, that that sort of allows allows one to have the ironic distance, because I think Odysseus has an ironic distance from a lot of this. Um, and he never wanted to be there, and, and he very rarely reveals what he thinks. Um, but But he... He allows one to see the dark side and the good side of every character. I, I mean, it's, it's not a wholly literary or satisfactory way of doing it, but, of course, you can't just fill it with footnotes. I'm not a historian. I can't say, but for some people, Helen was the shrew of all ages. For others, <laughs> she was a, a cult who was worshipped here, there, and so on. Because almost every character takes on huge meaning to subsequent generations. So Diomedes had temples to him and so on. Um, but you can't stop and do all of that. I think you you have to allow the reader to be surprised by how upset they are, perhaps, at the fall of Troy. Because um, we've all wanted it. You think, come on, we've got to 
It's, we've got to win. The Greeks have got somehow to win. And when the Trojan horse finally works, it is one is disgusted, I think, by the violence, by the horror, by Neoptolemus and Achilles' son, his particular horrific cruelty and violence. And it's never held back by um, by the writers. Uh, obviously, Homer isn't there in the terms of the story of the Iliad has finished uh, a, long ago. It ends with the funeral of Hector. But he refers to what will happen and then other sources like Virgil and, and Quintus Manaeus give good descriptions of terrible violence. And we feel responsible. I think that's part of the... In the same way, I suppose, that an intelligent and sensitive student reading about... Um, the massacre at Amritsar would feel somehow complicit just by being British. It's nonsense. We weren't there. It wasn't our decision. We're not General Dyer. We're not, you know, we're not responsible for it. And yet it's a stain on something to do with our identity. We won't go too far into the horrors of identitarian politics just now. But, but um, you know what I mean? There, there is a, yeah. it's part of the literary adventure of history is that you cannot but identify. And in identifying, when the side that you ally yourself to does something dreadful, you feel that you've done that dreadful thing. But Stephen, doesn't this raise an interesting question, which is that writing about this, I mean, this was a story that was told in a culture that, a culture that was much more violent than our own, with a cult of honour mm. that we barely understand. And it must be an interesting challenge to retell that story for basically, you know, there's always that argument which I imagine we all find quite irritating about relevance, about the relevance mm. of myths and history and whatnot. But it must be a challenge to write about this story for an audience that don't prize those things, for whom yeah. violence is repellent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's one of the real difficulties facing historians and retellers of any tale of the past. And I'm talking about the re recent past, which you, Dominic, know very well, for example, have made your study, is that ge subsequent generations find it very hard sometimes to understand what you might call the codes behind. Yeah. So, for example, and I, my generation of godsons and nephews and nieces, it, if I watch a film like, I don't know, it could be Brief Encounter or, or The Way to the Stars, some Second World War movie, they genuinely say to me, did people talk like that? <laughs> yeah. And I'll think, actually, is it that odd? I suppose well, maybe it is. So well, why don't they... Why, why do they hide everything? They don't talk about what they're feeling at all. And, mm. I, and I think, gosh, that is true. I mean, we sort of knew as a kind of joke about the stiff upper lip Englishman, but come to think of it, Michael Redgrave and Kenneth Moore, <laughs> Johnny Mills or whoever, yeah. they, they, they speak off the subject all the time. And this is recent. You know, I knew Johnny Mills. He was actually a very close friend. And my parents' generation were exactly that generation. And, and I don't think of them as being a different sort of human. And yet, the codes of, of conduct and of emotional language and of uh, even of what is loss, what is honour, what, uh, what it is to be a good human, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of very puritanical young people looking back at recent culture and judging it. And as you know, we now have to have apologies up in front of every film yeah. to explain that they reflect a different way of looking at the world. So if you go back thousands of years to the Bronze Age, where you're not, you haven't even got the advantage of, a, of, of writing to give you an insight, all you have is the marvellous detail of, for example, 
a good example of what I guess you're referring to, Dominic, would be the 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 code of of what to do with a dead body, which is to us a kind of well, we might know the story of Antigone, which all revolves around not mm. you know not burying someone. So, and we know that it's important in the Middle East to cover a body very early. So you can sort of get the idea that, but we tend to to, to, to use what I think anthropologists call the, the functional fallacy. That's to say, we say, oh yes, you cover a body early because otherwise it corrupts. You know, there's, there must be a good scientific quick reason that that's the reason behind kosher food. It spoils in the heat, you know, everything has to have a reason. Whereas in the, in the Homeric code, the covering of a body with earth or the burning of it or the, 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 expiation and the treatment of you know guest friendship and other codes like that um while you can try and put a reasoning behind it and uh, and give it a function uh it it's probably without going too uh, left bank intellectual it is probably <laughs> better to treat it in a slightly more levy strauss kind of way it's a it's a it's a phenomenon of of it's a it's an expression of behavior that that is rewarded by examining it and thinking about it and not just instantly saying, oh, it's because. Because is actually less interesting than how, how they live this code. Um, and the, as you say, the violence to us is unspeakable, partly because of the pain. We just think of the awful pain of these wounds uh, suppurating and the screaming of men as they're, they're hurt. And also because, um, you know, we don't... There's no sympathy. Uh, it, it seems that uh, all the sympathy is displaced into religious, you know, uh, obsequies and, 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 you know, funeral uh, rites and ointments and unguents and so on. But that really you're, you're looking as a Westerner with our culture and our post-romantic codes of sympathy and, uh, and so on, we're looking for those tiny moments in Homer, which we pick out. I choose Homer because those, that's the most, the clearest source. So that would be, uh, what's he called, Antilochus, the son of Nestor running along the sand to tell Achilles that the noise that has caused Achilles to look towards the fighting is, is the fighting over the death of Patroclus. And then he has to squat in front of Achilles and hold both his hands. And as Homer says, not so much in friendship, but more to stop Achilles harming himself. And Achilles sobs and sobs. And you think, there, there's a point of contact for me, mm. uh, a, a soft, liberal, in the widest sense of the word, Westerner, with my values that come from Keats and Tennyson and Dickens and, you know, the whole armory of Hollywood and soft culture and, uh, you know, that we must be lovely to each other and that we, when we do love each other, we break down in tears and the, the, our emotions, you know, have a, a, a righteous, you know, order of expression. And so you see that finally happening in Homer and it's like a you gush with, oh, what a moment <laughs> that is. Or the moment when, and, you know, um, uh, and, and Andromache and, uh, and Hector... Uh, 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 you know, he's got his helmet on, and and the flash of the helmet flashes in his baby Astyanax's eyes, and Astyanax opens his eyes and starts to cry because because he's scared by the nodding plume of his father's helmet. And Hector laughs and takes the helmet off, and they laugh at the boy for being frightened. And and underneath it all is uh, Andromache thinking, "You you're going to die today, Hector." And he's saying, "I'm not going to die today." 
it's all right, not today. And, and the and, child and again, is, going to, is going to die as well. And how that child dies is so horrific yeah. as well, yeah. 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 So it's like these tiny moments. It's, it's all you need. And it's a very important part of, of storytelling is, is how small those moments need to be. I, I remember being taught this as a wonderful lesson by a friend of mine who was really my uh, uh, sort of rabbi for storytelling, as it were, because he, he spoke in a wonderfully rabbinical way. It was a man called William Goldman, Bill Goldman, who wrote uh, um, Butch Cassidy, the screenplay, and, mm. and The Mar- Marathon Man. And he did Princess the, the Princess Bride, Bride, is that right? Princess Bride as well, Which, yeah. Who we've already name-checked on this podcast. <laughs> no, oh, never, never fight a land war in Asia. It is just a great one, isn't it? <laughs> one of the ineluctable truths, exactly. Yes. But uh, he he was saying to me how, for example, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he, he wrote as a comedy. He said, you just need two, one or two tiny moments to remind the audience that what's behind this is death. And then... They'll go along with the ride, they'll love the characters, but behind it all, there'll be a bell tolling. And in, in Butch Cassidy, it's, it's a lot of comedy between um, uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. But there's one moment when they get their pardon from the sheriff and he just hands them the pardon and he looks uh, Paul Newman in the eye and says, you're going to die bloody, Butch, you do know that. And and then there's a second of cloud goes across those blue eyes of Paul Newman, and then he jokes again. And and then Catherine Ross later on in the film says um, says to them uh, when they say they're going to go to South America, she says, "I'll cook for you, I'll sew for you, I'll I'll, I'll I'll do anything for you, but one thing I won't do, I won't watch you die." And 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 Bell said those are the only two moments in the film which are in any way a kind of downbeat moment, and yet they hang over it. So yeah. for all the, the banter and the fun that the characters have, who are those guys? You know, all this sort of wonderful comedy, there is that little plangent sense. And, and similarly, in all the horror and martial conquest and genealogical, genealogical name-calling of families and dynasties and so on that Homer gives you, there are these little pinpricks of human interaction that just make... The whole thing so real that you come back to it again and again. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, don't we? But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket. And cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities. So you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. I remember watching Robin Lane Fox, the very distinguished (laughs) classicist, um, reciting the the, the, the heart-rending end of the Iliad when Priam, the father of Hector, comes to the Greek camp to beg for the return of the body of his son, who Achilles is desecrating the body, refusing to allow it to, to, to be burnt. And Priam kneels before Achilles and kisses the hands of the man who slew his son and weeps. And as Robin A. Fox was reciting this, he began to weep. And it was an incredibly powerful moment, the kind of sense of people being joined across the millennia in this shared experience of of the trauma of it. But I was thinking that, I mean, Robin Lane Fox was from a generation who marinated in the classics, absolutely kind of raised in this kind of stuff. And you were talking about that, that there's a kind of generations that were absolutely habituated to the study of, of, of Greece and of Rome. Um, and now, as you were saying, we, we live in an age where that is much less the case. And yet the success of your books suggest that still this stuff has a cut through, but perhaps particularly to children. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's odd, isn't it, that this should be so violent. It's about death. It's about slaughter. It's about rape. It's about all the most horrendous things. And yet it always cuts through to children. And yeah. this is how children get introduced to antiquity more times than, than, than not, certainly how I was. And, and isn't that a paradox? It, it is. It's the, I, and I, I wonder about it a lot because, I, I, you know, most of the communications I get and, and requests for, you know, letters and thoughts about these books is from either children or their parents. Um, and and I, so I have consider why it is and I wonder if it isn't something to do with where the stories are poised between reality and symbolism Uh, I mean I I'm sure you get this both of you uh, and yet it's quite hard to explain why I think these stories are so different from fantasy because people will say oh yes because I love the Game of Thrones or I love uh, Tolkien or something and I'll go yes well I very nice too and they'll say but that's similar isn't it it's got dragons and monsters and and people with superpowers and I go yes and yet while that's true I don't think of Greek mythology as being like that even though it it reasonably is and nobody likes people to be snobbish about fantasy franchises and uh, you know it doesn't help with the study of classics or the study of history to be dismissive of passions that young people have in terms of storytelling. So if they love their Tolkien and their J.K. Rowling and their Game of Thrones and their Marvel cinematic universe, then you know, that's that's fine. But I think the 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 gods thing is is somehow children are aware of this of this sense of it belonging in a special space where humans and these fictional gods they don't really believe in, but they. They know they're on their side. The, the children know about them. They've collected their details. They feel they can belong in that world. And I think they love what academics call um, double determination, which sounds a very strange idea, but is one of the things that's particularly interesting in late Greek myth is when 
say, uh, Paris is uh, aiming his arrow at Achilles, uh, you can tell the story that he gets off a lucky shot and it lands in the heel of Achilles. Or you can say that Apollo appeared and held the arrow for him, held the bow and guided the shot because that's what Apollo, god of archery, might do and he's on the side of the Trojans and it is actually written that he would be, in some respects, the author of uh, Achilles' death. There's an earlier prophecy about that. Well, you so you could say, as as Homer does, that there is Apollo and there is Paris. Or you can be more like an author is, saying, oh, the muse wasn't with me, with me last night. The author doesn't really think there's a muse whispering in their ear, but if the muse is with them, they'll go, oh, the muse was absolutely in my ear. And I wrote and I wrote, and it was amazing. And wow, and then she went, you know. And it, it's, you know, it, cricketers will say the same about mother cricket or, you know, or form, you know, is a kind of god that settles on you. And every Greek archer, in thousands of years after the Greek War, would have said, come on, Apollo, guide my arrow. Because that's just like Basil Fawlty saying, thank you, God. You know, <laughs> it's just a thing we do. So you can read the whole of the Iliad and the whole of the Odyssey and decide that the gods are symbolic purely and that it, it doesn't really... When Athena tells Achilles to calm down and not lose his temper publicly or, he, you know, and just to, to leave the tent... Uh, is that simply the better angels of his nature? Is it the wisdom in him saying, come on, Achilles, don't lose your temper? You know, the Athena in us is that character that is wise and temperate. Do you see oh, what I mean? So yeah. there, there is this, it's double determination. You can say it's the god and have it as a fantasy world of gods actually in yeah. the battle. Or you can have it as these, they stand for, these elements that they represent. I wonder if it's kind of the difference between dinosaurs and dragons, that both are kind of big yes. and fierce, but dinosaurs actually existed. And yeah. in, the, in the imagination of, of the ancients, the gods existed. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and that kind of, in a way, makes them... Because I'm, at, at the moment, I'm kind of doing a sequel to Troy. So I'm writing a history of, of ancient Greece in which the gods do continue to play because oh, you know, they did, they did yeah. have roles. You know, yeah, indeed. Philippides yeah. running from, from Athens to summon the Spartans to come and, and join them at, at, at Marathon and he, he, he's running back and um, the Spartans have said that they're going to come late and he meets with Pan, the great god Pan. This is what Herodotus says and Pan says, um, I will be there at Marathon and then at Marathon, sure enough, the, the Persians experience panic Pan is there. Yes, Pan and so I'm there. kind of writing it and, and putting the gods back in and it's kind of like rewilding history because suddenly all kinds of things make sense. So I, I, I've been kind of mm. thinking about this that I, I think part of the appeal of it almost is entering a world in which these gods are possible and there's something about their glamour, their mystique, yeah. the, the kind of way in which then they, they behave terribly Maybe it's appealing to children. I don't know. Yes. Something of that. I think you may be right, and I like your dinosaur dragons idea. I think, I think there is this sense that I had, and I'm sure you had as a child when reading Greek mythology, that somehow there was a... It goes back to something truthful or, or something mm. pure and right, whereas a single authored uh, fantasy world like Tolkien's or Narnia or any other, while it can be ter terrific fun, doesn't have that 
sort of authenticity, that sense of it belonging to something there's a, real. There's a weight, isn't there, Stephen? Yeah. It's kind of a weightiness that these... There's a sense of rootedness, I guess. Yes. But actually, I, I wanted to press right. you on this. I'm, glad, I'm so glad you brought it up, because in our house, I have a nine-year-old, so you are mm. a constant presence. I mean, you're, you're in our ears all the time, through mm. Harry Potter, through The mm. Hobbit, the Sherlock Holmes audiobooks, <laughs> yeah, which you did. And I'm wondering whether... Um, I mean, some of those things have a kind of mythic quality. So Sherlock Holmes, for example, I mean, he's yes. become a kind of mythic character. He's accumulated like a sort of old boat. He's got all these kind of carbuncles on or these sort of... You know, he's... He's more than purely the creation of Arthur Conan Doyle, isn't he? And do you think there are other modern equivalents that have become mythic in the same way as Homer's characters? I think Holmes is a, is a pretty special example. Uh, I, I was thinking about this uh, not long ago, about uh, how many characters could you express in a game of Pictionary quite so quickly <laughs> as, as Sherlock Holmes? You'd, you'd have a, a looking glass and a deer stalker and a pipe and instantly wherever you were in the world they could say Sherlock Holmes and you, you know you could do it uh, I suppose with Charlie Chaplin as a as a film uh, image character and maybe with the circles for the ears of Mickey Mouse when you're moving towards the logo side of characters there but <laughs> there is there is no question that Sherlock Holmes has extraordinary uh, uh, reach through cultures all over the world and um, one can look for answers as to why that might be. I suppose the most obvious one is that we all want Sherlock Holmes in the same way I suppose we want Jeeves. You know, there is this idea of wouldn't it be wonderful to have a friend, a mentor, a wise teacher who saw things and knew things and could advise us and uh, and yet, you know, be a, um, a, a friend and not be a... Uh, an, an emperor or, or in some way a, a terrible boss you know but just some someone there who could just just make just solve everything for us mm. and um it is it's interesting because there isn't that much of an archetype i mean you could argue that jeeves and so on is an archetype you know the, the servant that's wiser than his master goes back through um Volpone and you know Ben Johnson and, and yeah. Goldoni and 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 all and right back to um, Terence and uh, Roscius and those you know uh, Roman plays uh, all full of uh, stupid masters aren't they and who are kind of equivalents of a Bertie Wooster but 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 to have a, a a Sherlock Holmes figure I suppose the closest is is Odysseus in a yeah. way because w one of the things you can say about the Trojan War mm. uh, uh, again without being too sort of uh, prescriptive about it is that um it, it's mankind playing out what mankind is you know this first test of of this greatest war that's ever been these two civilizations clashing and more soldiers and more ships and more resources being being put into this fight and what's going to win it there's ajax and diomedes and and all these remarkable hector these great fighters penthesilea and memnon and all these amazing warriors but they don't win it what wins it is deceit cunning 
tricky. <laughs> Those are the human qualities. And it, it is, you know, I mean, Nietzsche wanted us to look at uh, Dionysus and Apollo as the two principles that, that, that are behind the, the Greek spirit and, uh, and so on in, in terms of, you know, harmony, golden order, reason, numbers, prophecy, all the beauties of the Apollonian way. Uh, and then underneath that, of course, the, the frenzy, the appetite, the addiction, the, the, the instinct and impulse of the Dionysian way of, of being. Uh, but, but also there is in between of Hermes and, and, and his descendant Odysseus, where sheer, sheer trickery, lying, deceit, storytelling, which is, of course, another aspect of Hermes' Uh, 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 one of his responsibilities. He's the god of storytellers as well as of liars. Uh, Storytellers are liars, of course. So maybe behind that glory is an impish truth about humanity. The the Icelandic uh, and Norse uh, uh, saga makers we're kind of familiar with, but I was reading ages ago and I can't remember who, so I may have got it very wrong. But I was reading that, as it were, on the hillside at the end of the battle, there would be two bonfires, and around one would be a group of people listening to the saga maker who would tell how Hengist had destroyed 40 people with a, you know, his sword and, uh, and killed another 20 just by strangling them and well, how heroic he was. But around the other bonfire would be the glee man, who would tell how Hergist had actually not managed to strap his sword and it had fallen over, but he had fallen over on top of two of the enemy and squashed them. And he would tell a satirical <laughs> comic version of the battle. And in a, in a strange sort of way, the Trojan War is, is, is like that. There is this noble roster of extraordinary heroes and their incredible courage and their skill with swords and spears and bows and arrows and chariots and all the rest of it. But then there is this deceitful, wicked um, figure, this delightful, cunning Odysseus who strokes his chin and thinks up ways of using deceit to win the war. And that is what wins it, followed by appalling violence, of course. But, but that's... It's as if... Because I think one of the things about Greek myth is that Greeks must have... And I and it's wrong to say must have. We don't know what they thought. But I would be astonished if the Greeks weren't astonished by themselves. That's to say <laughs> that they must have noticed how unusual, though, as, as you got out of the archaic into the historical classical Greek era, they must have noticed that they now had the writing that the Phoenicians had given them, the Cadmian alphabet, as they called it. Uh, so that was fine. But they'd, they'd, they'd build up a civilization that was actually better than the, the one across the sea. The, the, the Egyptian one had existed for thousands of years and barely changed in that time. It takes an Egyptologist to say, oh, that particular pylon is 3,000 years old, that one is 5,000 years old. But that's 2,000-year difference. Mm. You know, I mean, if you go back 2,000 years from... From now, you're in the year 1020, 40 years before, before the Battle of Hastings, and, and it's a very different world, whereas the, the, the Egyptians stayed the same. And the Greeks appeared to be the first civilization that believed in progress, that wanted to learn new things and change and add and ad- adapt and adopt and evolve in terms of their civilization, their policy, their polities, um, their, their city-states, the way they were run. Um, 
And of course, one can romanticize and idealize Greeks far too much. We know that they also had slaves and they were brutal to their own people when they needed to be and so on, but, or felt they needed to be. But they were unusual. And they looked at humanity, it seems, in a different way to previous civilizations. You, of course, we can only go from either an archaeological record and look at objects or from a historical record when writing arrives again uh, uh, after the collapse of the Bronze Age and the you know, arrival of the Phoenician alphabet, you can start to see that the Greeks were interested in what humans were. And they wrote plays and, and philosophy evolved that examined human motive and in ways that we don't have any, any evidence that other people did. And they may have done, of course, but they didn't leave it on cuneiform tablets and they didn't leave it in any other record for us to see clearly that they had anything like the Greeks' fascination with the ambiguity, complexity, contrariness of human motive and behaviour and, and that people weren't just, as I say, the early version, they weren't just four-bit blocky non-resolved, but that people <laughs> yeah. were complicated and they had warring gods inside them. And Athens itself and Greece, and you know, was a confusing thing. And there were different ways you could choose to live. And you could live by your wits or you could live by martial prowess. And yes. the Greeks never resolved it. The Romans decided martial prowess would be it, and they tended, they realigned Greek mythology in ways to emphasize that. I mean, you know far more about this than me, Tom. And you, I'd love to hear you talk about the, you know, the um, the, the the religion of, of of Rome, which you can is much easier to talk about than the religion of Greece. Although there was a, a religious caste in the time of Athens, of course they put Socrates to death. But um, in in Rome. The way they changed Ares to Mars, for example, or the way they changed uh, Aphrodite to Venus, that there were they be, the gods became symbols of a Roman attitude to didn't they more? Yeah. Wouldn't you? I th- I, well, I, th- I think the Roman gods are are, are more analog. <laughs> to, yes, yes, to pers- that's good to, way of putting to it. To pursue your your, yeah. your metaphor, and I I, I think that um, you're talking about Odysseus as being kind of cunning and clever and smart and mobile and contradictory. And then you moved on to talking about Athens in, in very similar mm. terms. And of course, yeah. the god who joins them both is Athena, who, for my yes. money, is the greatest deity of all time, yes. because she's so complicated. You know, she is the god of the of the battle line, but she's also the god of the loom and of the arts of civilization. And yes. I think it speaks wonderfully of Odysseus that Athena chooses him to be her favourite. Yes. And I think it speaks wonderfully of the Athenians that she chooses them to be her her people, the people that, that she looks out for. And I remember as a child that realising that was what was served as the gateway drug of moving from mythology to history, of thinking that the yes. Athenians were the kind of Odysseus of the ancient world. Well, there, um, there, of course, there is one mythic uh, sort of uh, origin story of Athens that suggests that actually the Athenians <laughs> chose Athena rather than she choosing them, that that Athena and Poseidon uh, 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 went to the people of the city and and asked them which, patron, which god they wanted to be their patron. 
and, and Poseidon offered them spring water and uh, uh, and all that and, and all good tides and things like that, and, uh, and said he wouldn't send any earthquakes. And Athena, apparently in this particular version, offered them the olive. I'd go for the olive. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> and they decided that with the olive, you could they could build ships out of olive wood. They could use the oil in all kinds of ways and the, and the fruit of the olive to eat. And so they decided that that was a more valuable thing than anything Poseidon could promise them. <laughs> Let me ask you a very uh, humdrum question. It's about the tone of voice that you adopt. So you're saying that you get a lot of correspondence from children. Mm. And I'm wondering whether that... Um, when you started, did you think of the... So when you started with the mythos and the heroes, did you think of these... You didn't think of them as children's books, right? No, I didn't. But I did remember that it was as a child that I fell in love with them and that I read Robert Graves, who who, who yeah. wrote two versions of his collection, one for adults and a children's version as well. And I soon went to the adult one because I loved the detail of footnotes and all these extraordinary little side stories he told. Um, so I, I I was sort of writing for an intelligent young adult, early teen kind of to uh, as much as anything. And what I had in mind, because it struck me as so important when I was first thinking about this, was the the sense of the hearth, the 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 sitting around a fire um, that you know, like a lot of people had read uh, um, Noah Huval Harari, um, uh, oh, yeah. and and had been you know thinking about early mankind and the development of uh, uh, early tools and then of fire and so on and of language. 50,000 years ago. Um, and I was thinking, well, okay, 50,000 years ago, language and fire have allowed human beings to, a great deal more safety of an evening and a great deal more leisure time. The, the calories come cheaper now. And, <laughs> uh, you know, animals are slowly being uh, uh, harnessed to, to, to work and so on. And so children are sitting around the fire at the end of the day and saying, as they hear the wind rustling in the trees. What is that wind? What is that noise? Who drives it? Where does it come from? Because human beings, whenever there's an agency, a force, a, a, a movement, a motive, uh, which is the same as a movement, etymolo etymologically, isn't it? A motion. Well, as soon as there's motion, you have to ask yourself what causes it. And that is the essence of what Newton asked. Well, what causes this motion? I can't get behind it. I can understand wind to some extent, not hugely, but there was a sense that wind had a physical explanation, wasn't a god, but everything else that moves. Even what is it that pushes fruit out of the out of twigs and, and blossom and leaves? And then what causes them to drop? And the children ask this and the adults say, Oh well, if if you don't know the answer, then you give you give it an agency, and that's what we call a god. You say there is this force that pushes the fruit out and then you, a, a story develops around the mother, the barley mother, Demeter, who, uh, the, 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 the great goddess of, of fruit and, food and fruit and so on, and how she does all this. And then why does she stop? Why, doesn't it ha why, why does it stop in the autumn? Ah, well, and then the story of, you know, so you get a, kip, a, a kind of Kipling just-so story, etiological stories is the technical name for them, I think. And um, these are all stories that you can just uh, tell to, to bind you as a family, a group, a clan, 
a tribe, a community generally, are bound by these stories they tell. And then as they trade with groups, you know, over in another valley or even across a bay, and those groups will have a slightly different story about their god. So you you mix them and you get a syncretic, as they call it, sort of mixture of different religions happening and different, you can't quite remember where that one came from. But all this is while you have language, but you haven't yet got writing. But then what happened is that in roughly the same time, two great Greeks, Hesiod stroke Hesiod, I never, don't ask me about vowels and Greek pronunciation. (laughs) Americans and Britons say different things. You may say Hesiod, you may say Hesiod. Anyway, he and Homer around the same time started to give a shape that has stayed with these stories ever since. And so they've become, in that sense, literary. Um, uh, Hesiod wrote down the birth of the gods, Theogony, um, and and gave very clear stories of who was the father and the mother and where they all came from. And one assumes he was working on what had been stories told orally, uh, but he was self-consciously writing them down and giving them a shape. And there was an authority to the way he, he he did it, which meant subsequent generations would say, well, look up in your Hesiod. So uh, by the time you get to Plato and those sort of people, they're referring to him and they're referring yeah. to Homer, uh, um, who's given these stories an, uh, uh, an authentic shape. So they've, there's an official version. I suppose in the same way, there became an official version for the Arthur legends. You know, there'd been these different Chrétien de Troyes and then Mallory yeah. and others put them into. And then you say, well, no, this is the version, the, the Lady in the Lake version with the sword coming out. Um, and Or with Robin Hood, you say, this is the version here, you know. Um, and they become official. But there's always that sense that they started with just families telling stories to keep their children amused and to tell them how the leopard got its spots, as it were. Yes. And so, Stephen, when you, when you, um, when you think about that this kind of chain of transmission going mm. thousands and thousands of years. And then you think about all the, the links in that chain from Homer, Virgil, through the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, into the modern age. I mean, do you have, do you have a consciousness of that? Do you have the anxiety of influence or do you <laughs> yeah, not think of that point. weight of influence at all? It, but it's funny, Tom, the, in, in, it happens in both directions. On the one hand, I feel completely free because I think these are folk stories. They they are in the in the Jungian sense part of the collective unconsciousness of a whole people from long ago. They don't have any copyright marks on them. They're public domain if ever anything was. But on the other hand, yes, these are stories that have been burnished and gilded and perfected by every every great poet and and writer before me, and and I am, in that sense, utterly unworthy. But the best you can feel is that I can't spoil them. I can't, at least, I hope <laughs> well, not. Yeah, I mean, not. that would be, that would just be awful. <laughs> I mean, because <the>, <laughs> you go back, you look at um, some of the big names, uh, a couple of big Americans in particular, who dominated uh, uh, American childhoods for over 100 years, would be Thomas Bullfinch, uh, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who, who both Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote his Tanglewood Tales for children, in which he told some of the um, the great stories of Greek myth, um, particularly the sort of Ovid stories of, of transformations, um, and and Bullfinch told his 
very bowdlerized, but but excellently exciting stories of Greek myth. And they stayed for children. And of course, they use language like, you know, no, swain. You know, someone's a swain. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that, we don't have swains anymore. We don't know what a swain is. But I was so I I was thinking, well. I'm sure my language will date, because it will. You, you can't stop it from dating. But I won't... Ex- I try not to accelerate its dating by doing what you occasionally see in these illustrated versions of modern Greek myth for children, in which, uh, you know, uh, Phaeton was this dude who lived in, you know, uh, in Phrygia <laughs> yeah. or something. And, and you think, well, I'm not going to call them dudes. I'm not, you know, they just, it's not me. And uh, That's beneath so you, even, Stephen. Well, I I mean, it, it's, I, can, I can understand why people would want you know, to make these characters appear wow. more uh, vivid and alive. And, and, and they might think that using, you know, South Side street slang is, is a good way of doing it. I, it's just not the way I could do it, personally. Uh, I, think, I think another thing is there is a huge uh, proportion of children who are not what we think children are. In other words, who don't spend their lives with their heads buried in uh, Instagram and Snapchat and mm. um, and TikTok and so on, who actually think it's a bit lame and who love the idea of discovering old musty things in libraries. I am sure that if I were 15 now, I would be like that. I would want to go off grid. I would have fun with my friends saying, let's use real telephones, OK? Let's meet <laughs> next week. You know, exactly. And all that, I'd sort of, you know, go off yeah. the grid because it would be fun or even produce a, a magazine using a Gestetner um, uh, duplicator rather than, you know, just scanning things. Just, but, just because it would be a, I know in its own way, pretentious, of course, but one would be part of that gang that liked looking back. And, and I was, when I was a schoolboy, I wore stiff collars and was a complete prick as far as, <laughs> you know, try, try, you know, doing all these, you know, looking old-fashioned. Because, well, but Stephen, uh, you love your technology. I know, You're that's the way thing. famous for loving your technology. Yeah. I'm aware that we've, we've, we've kept you for, for far too long, but I just yes, wanted to say yeah. how, I mean, in a way, how moving it is to be talk that you were talking about these very ancient tales and about how people gather and discuss them. And here we are, you're in California, we're in England, and yet still we're talking about these stories. And, and to thank you for, for having come on and, and, and talked to us about it. It's, it's kind of an amazing synergy of ancient and modern. It's it's such a pleasure, Tom, and I I have to say, which I haven't managed to, what an admirer I am of both your work. Um, I, oh, I thanks, love Tim. what you do for the uh, and uh, I I've listened to them as audiobooks, actually, Dominic. Uh, Seasons in the Sun oh. and White White Heat. They actually work really well, and of course, I'm exactly the age when I was growing up through these these periods of the 60s and 70s in particular that you uh, bring to life so so brilliantly. Um, and so between you, uh, you bookend uh, <laughs> Western history rather rather well, fabulously. You, oh, you, Stephen, you, we should you, be paying you for this. <laughs> you, you, you provide us with the perfect end for this no. podcast, Stephen. We can't thank you enough for having come on and wishing you all the very best with the book. Thanks so much. A real pleasure. Thank you. So that was Stephen Fry. Tom, I could see your face during that uh, conversation. You were loving that, weren't you? That was right up your alley. It really was, and particularly because, as I said in the in the course of the um, of, of the interview, uh, I'm doing this kind of sequel to the Trojan War, where the gods are real. So, um, hearing Stephen's views on that and how it relates to um, Greek history and more generally to the kind of 
the way that we understand the past, Greek past particularly. I thought it was fantastic, really interesting. Let me ask you a quick question, just coming off the back of our chat with Stephen. So his books have been colossal sellers. Do you think there'll ever be a point in history, I mean, in, in the foreseeable future, when we, people will lose interest in this stuff, when it will just become sort of obscure antiquarianism and these myths will no longer play such a role. I mean, already they play a, a smaller role than they did in, say, the Victorian period, don't they? I thought that that question was hanging over the whole, everything we talked about pretty much, because it, we had the context of a society, an education system that was completely geared to studying these myths, and now we no longer do. And yet the success of Stephen's books shows that you don't need people to be completely grounded in the classics yeah. for children to, to get obsessed by it because the stories are so strong. They're so strong that people respond to them instinctively. And, you know, just looking at the way that it's been reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted, that doesn't happen because there's, you know, there are school teachers or um, cultural conservatives saying, you've got to enjoy this. It happens because there is something about them that instinctively uh, encourages people to retell them, reinterpret them and um, draw kind of an understanding of the world from it that I think, I think, you know, it, it will endure forever. Actually, one of my favourite um, reinterpretations of the Trojan War is um, a science fiction novel by a guy called Dan Simmons. I don't know if you've come across it. He no. wrote a book called I- Ilium, uh, and it's set in the shadow of Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus, of course, is the largest mountain on Mars. And um, nano-enhanced superhumans are restaging the Trojan War, and they are kind of in the role of the gods intervening and they have and it's it's in a way it's kind of the best fictional recreation of the power of the gods relative to humans that, that i've come across and i think that you know i can absolutely imagine in uh, in 3000 ad that people will still be reading the trojan war and maybe doing it on mars who knows great well that's a good note on which to end so uh that's a chat with stephen fry and we'll be returning to more normal service next time goodbye goodbye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.